Hello, Heron. Hello, Tom. And happy birthday. Ah, thank you, sir. <laughs> Did my gift arrive? Not yet. What a bore. Oh, well. Um, okay. I, yeah. I'll contact them and see what on earth is going on with that, because... Uh, it should have been here, huh? I ordered it two weeks ago. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, um, maybe my landlord stole it. Yeah. <laughs> Quite possibly. Quite yeah, possibly. who knows? I mean, that seems to be standard up in your area. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's going on. Yes. Well, I will, I will, when I get off this call, I will send an email... Because uh, yeah, postage was quite a considerable amount for this gift. Oh, it must be heavy then. Yes, it is. Oh, good. Was it a new computer? Uh, probably <laughs> better than a new computer, but anyway, oh, cool. I will contact the uh, All right. responsible yeah. parties and see what has happened. Well, you know, no, I, no, I just was outside the door. I'm thinking maybe it's there and I just didn't go out and look for it. But <laughs> Anyway, moving yeah. on from that. Yeah. I well, have... actually, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Okay. Is uh, last week you brought up that, uh, you know, people had uh, thought, you know, suggested a whiteboard for me, you know, and, yes. and we sort of dismissed that as not a very good idea. Um, but the, after I thought about that, I, I thought, you know, I'm just really grateful that people are even thinking about me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I didn't really... The thoughts are slightly selfish, any- Aaron. I mean, these are selfish thoughts here that our listeners are concocting. Well, they're thoughts about me, though. Well, they're thoughts about what you can do for them. Whatever. I'll take it. You know, the <laughs> fact that... Uh, you know, I, I just... I didn't express it. I mean, you just sort of went, yeah, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> you know? But but really, the just the idea that someone out there is thinking about ways to enhance my effectiveness... Mm the world uh makes me really feel good and i want to thank them for that Mm -hmm. even though the particular idea sort of got panned (laughs) you know just the fact that you're there and that you're supporting uh me and you think about me on occasion thank you i really appreciate that very good if they're not used to us panning their views they're really not listening to stone out thoroughly i think well that's probably true but still i think it's good to express gratitude certainly without question it's uh, it's uh, it's important to me it really it makes a big difference when when you know every once in a while i get an email from someone who stumbled onto my website Mm. doesn't happen very often but you know once in a while and they just say something like thanks a lot i enjoyed it it was fun made me think about something or other and that is so rewarding when i when i get something like that well you know it's the same thing you know it's it's just it's wonderful and um, i appreciate it most certainly yeah uh i do have a couple things certainly one of them well, it was just a thought that came to me, probably why I'm holding off on doing the DMT, mm. is that right now I'm working on completing old material, mm. and I don't need any new shit to think about right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that would just sort of probably get me sidetracked away from what I have decided I want to do. Mm which is somehow bring Gendo to the world in some sort of fashion that that makes sense. And um, I just don't need any new shit. I may do it sooner or later. I mean, I'll certainly do it at some point. Uh, but just when, um, I, I don't know right now. I don't feel any need to, to, you know, I mean, as much as the idea of machine elves and alien intelligences stri- sounds to me you know, really interesting, I just don't need that right now. So I'm just going to hold off. Yeah. Very good. 
And uh, and then the other thing was a question. I, I do have the movie Gremlins now. I haven't watched it. I sort of scanned through it. And, and I wanted to ask you again, are you sure you want to recommend this movie to me? <laughs> well, I don't know. You've recommended some movies to me that I didn't think were particularly relevant. If you don't want to watch yeah. it, don't watch it. Don't. Yeah. I mean, my view is actually that the recommendation came in a suite of four films, of which you had seen the top film that I was recommending. Which one was that? The Drop. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then I thought Gremlins came slightly above the interview, which you probably haven't yet seen, or have you? No, I, I've got it, but I, <laughs> and then, I I download about ten movies a week, and I watch one every other week, maybe. Yes, and then the, the final <laughs> film was uh, Jingle All the Way, which was at the very bottom. Yeah, no, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I'll never get past the title on that one. Yes, um, <laughs> yes, this very little redeeming uh, in Jingle All The Way, but it was of the four films that I had seen over a particular period. Uh, Look, yeah. my view is best concentrate on getting your old stuff new again and don't invest time in Gremlins unless you have time well, to there are other there's so many. I mean, like, like I say, I've got probably close to a thousand movies. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to throw it away. You know, yeah. I may have a stroke or something and maybe Gremlins will be just perfect for me at Certainly. some point, you know. But there are other movies I'd probably... Fine, but if 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 like say there are a lot of movies out there that you never would think would be worth watching, and they mm. turn out to be great little things that the mass audience has completely missed what's going on there. Mm. And I was thinking, well, maybe Gremlins is like one of those things. It was, I, you know, is that there is. Why don't we throw this out to the listeners? Yeah? If, if you feel Heron should watch Gremlins, approach oh, either Heron or approach me, and I will forward your information onto Heron yeah, and give the thumbs a, up. Let's take a vote. Yeah. <laughs> see. That way I don't have to think about it. You know, if, if so, we get a, what, two-thirds, I need more than 50%, you know. I mean, thumbs like, up, yes. Yeah, two-thirds thumbs up, and I'll watch it. Very good. Very and that good. presumes there'll be more than three people. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that's all I've got. Okay. Well, I'm yet to see the Deer Hunter. I had promised myself that I would see the Deer mm. Hunter last year, and I've yet, not yet seen it. So yeah. I probably need to order the DVD. Well, I haven't right. seen that in a long... Yeah. I saw that, you know, many years ago. I wasn't that... I mean, yeah, I liked it, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't sort of stick with me. I think know? the best cuts of the Deer Hunter exist online already, and I've already seen the Deer Hunter in seven minutes and these kind of things. <laughs> and from what I read about it, the first hour or what have you is just an establishment of the characters a wedding. Yeah, but, yeah. And that bit apparently is very slow and and, but it builds up that you then have a knowledge of the characters and, and you know that kind of stuff. Lives. Yeah, you, you know, you've really got to wonder, you know, really how important all that is. Yeah. You know, so we can learn all about their monkey business. Yeah. You know, no, I, I suffered through a film with my wife last night called The Chef, which I oh really, yeah, I've heard, yeah, I've got that. I haven't watched it yet. But, I wouldn't recommend that. I'd put Gremlins over The Chef. The, hmm. the Chef is about an hour and forty minutes worth of about. 30 minutes of, well, according to my spiritual advisor, about 30 minutes of well-written stuff, and then the rest mm -hmm. is garbage. I found it really very, it, it, just tiresome. Just tiresome, overly verbose, <laughs> unnecessary <laughs> plot twists that were supposed to be associated with character development. I mean, it had about four yeah. things going on at the same time kind of wrapped around cooking. I've never been able to figure out why I like some movies and not others. 
You know, mm. I, I've never been able to sort of nail it down and say, well, it's this, this, and this. You know, this just sometimes sometimes it's an actor. I think you know, I just exactly. like yeah. what they do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Jeff Bridges. Mm. I, 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 I like. Cole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't think I've ever seen a movie with him in it that I didn't find at least okay. Mm. You, you look know? a little bit like Jeff Bridges, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Well, the first time I became aware your... of him yeah. was was in um, Starman. Interesting. And I thought I really loved that his portrayal. I mean, of this wooden <laughs> fake character, sort of. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. 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 I I like his work. So something that's not in my written notes, but has just occurred to me through your mentioning of Jeff Bridges was the photo which I've seen it's not really a photo, it's a kind of photo collage of various influential oh, people yeah. that you post periodically. Yeah. Yeah. And in the centre of the photo, which I hadn't realized in my initial viewing, I must have first seen I think you recommended me to look at it maybe two years ago, maybe even longer, and I pointed out the caveman looking dude there. Apparently oh, oh, a yeah. friend who yeah. threw frisbees and he yeah, was in there right. but he wasn't the same Neanderthal that I had picked out from the original <laughs> photo. But what I had missed in it was actually your adopted parents oh, in yeah. the centre. Yeah, right, right there in the middle. And yeah. it, it struck me because in particular last recording we talked a little bit about your adopted parents around cussing and, you know, general angry argument. Yeah. And I spent, I don't know, maybe a couple of minutes just studying their faces because I think irrespective of, you know, genetics, something I found with my friend Bruce Damer who's, who was adopted was that he had his his genetics, his underlying, you know, what you could see in, I guess, his his phenotype was very much of his birth parents, and he has yeah. photographs of them as well. But the lines and the uh, facial creases that came from smiling uh, yeah, and interacting. from experience exactly. and being in the world, exactly. yeah, that's all very different. Yeah. Yes. And I was actually studying your adopted father in this light, and mm. I could see, you know, there were certain elements that I could see that went along in a similar light, not quite as striking as Bruce. It's kind of hard to tell, I yeah. think, because it's not very high-resolution well, photo. You can't tell much from that photo. I'm looking at it right now. And interpretively, yeah. you can tell a bit about yeah. it. I mean, I think the nature... Yeah. I spent You've probably previous, looked at it more carefully than I have. <laughs> in a previous life, I used to study photo images to find artifacts to report to printer companies, so... I mean, I have a relatively curious way of observing uh. photographs in this slide. But I thought it was fascinating because we've talked periodically about both your adopted parents and different components, but talking uh -huh, about yeah. the fight and cussing and these yeah. kind of things illustrated certain elements because there's also a, a narrative that you have associated with the World War II generation. Oh, yeah. And I think your stepfather, at least, sorry, your, your adoptive father, at least. Oh, he's my father. Yes. You know, father. I mean, I, I just think of them as my parents. <laughs> exactly. you know? well, he, he is of that generation, right? Yeah. Well, actually, he was in uh, World War One. Gosh. He was old. <laughs> Gosh. So that's an even, that's a, that's a different generation again. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different universe. So your mother, your mother was considerably younger than your father. No, she was uh, somewhat old. Well, yeah, she was younger. You know, I don't know what their actual age difference was. I could mm -hmm. work it out, but I'm not interested in doing it right now. But um, no, they were both. I think uh, they were both in their forties when I showed up. Interesting, interesting. Or when they adopted me, I should yeah. say. 
No, my spiritual advisor and I have been discussing adoption recently. Yeah. And I think it's something that certainly I'm becoming more more in tune with as a really? possibility. Why would anybody want to adopt some kid? Well, I have a vast quantity of of information in a variety <laughs> okay, of different so, forms. Okay, you want to program them. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is the ultimate programming be, assignment. Yeah, other, what other point would be there exactly. to Exactly. If you can't create an interesting individual. Exactly. And no, this whole, this whole excursion. Well, I could Uncle Heron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But anyway, it's a long way off, but it's something that we were discussing, and certainly I reflected yeah. on your, as I do, I mean, I have a number of friends who, in fact, more in the US than anywhere else. I think because, for some reason, there just seem to be more adopted people in the U.S. per capita than anywhere else I've lived. Really? Um, yeah, I have no no knowledge. It's not something I've ever really given a whole lot of. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, the social security system, the whole nature of... But then again, also, yeah, I don't know, it's very curious. But I just know more adopted folk, and maybe people talk about it more here. Maybe that's it. Mm. Yeah, I, I just don't know. That's a good question. I, yeah, it's curious uh, how many kids are adopted a year. What percentage of all, you know, in what ages they're, I mean, like I say, I was spoken for before I was born. Certainly. Uh, but I know a lot of, that's not common, I don't think, is it? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I think usually, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't know anything about, don't know anything about it. Yes. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I kind of spent a few minutes studying your parents and reflecting on the stories and things that we have discussed. I like that picture. Mm. I think that's a nice picture. It I is. Think. It yeah. is. And also, I mean, talking last recording, it gave me an insight into, I guess, how considered both your parents would need to be. I mean, I guess if they're in their 40s, they're pretty well baked by the time you came along. Oh, yeah. I think they were. Uh, yeah. Yeah. See, I, I really can't talk much about my father because he died when I was 12. Certainly. So, you know, I just relate to him as dad. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't really see him as a human. My mother, I can. I can see all her shortcomings and, <laughs> and, and everything, you know, and what a brain-damaged language monkey she was. Yes. But then, aren't we all? Yes. <laughs> you know, but in any case um, – I had no sense of any, I mean, I just, my, my father was, I, especially after that, I think that that argument that they had when he came out and consoled me, that, I think that was a pivotal turning point in my life hmm. in that I, that I sort of chose him over my mother. If she'd happened to come out, again, he just got out of the house probably just to get out of the house and there I was. I don't think he was coming to console me. Are you, were you... Were you six, seven? Were you ten? How old? Oh, you know, um, I must have been uh, somewhere between like six and eight, maybe. Okay. Okay. Something like that. Pretty young. And, you know, and like I say, I, I, she, it might have just as easily have been her who came out of that door mm. and saw me and went, oh, don't worry, it'll be, it'll be okay. But for me, uh, th- that was really significant. He came out and consoled me and my mother didn't. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. and um, and I think that sort of poisoned my relationship with her from then on for many years. <laughs> it is strange because I mean, as we discussed last recording, my perspective on both my parents was with regards to their anger and their rage from uh-huh. a very young age, and I think actually it changed me 
associated with the way I interact with people in the general world. But my sure my standard me- method of operating when I encounter someone who's angry and generally, you know, generally disconnected due to their anger is to find ways of resolving that as quickly as possible. Yeah. And mine is to get the hell out yes. of it. <laughs> That's how I resolve. Well, I, I've reprogrammed some of that recently to get the hell out of there. But it does strike me that um, I'll, I'll give a little insight here. A number of the tech companies, when they recruit, they uh, make you interview with six people. Wow. And my experience with this, where each of them has to give you the all clear in order for you to get the job. To get to the next one. Yeah. Well, no, they all they don't confer until after. Oh, until afterwards. Okay. And my experience with two companies, which makes me think that it's actually part of the underlying protocol, is the last person of the six is angry. And you have to be able... And my, ah, my interesting. has always been... But with these two companies, which I won't ah. necessarily mention, it didn't go particularly swimmingly with me because this last person nixed me. But I think I'm not... I think in that circumstance, and this goes out to all, um, you know, budding young tech folk that are interested in these companies, I in both cases, tried to appease the angry person. Uh-huh. And I tried to calm them down and then interact with them in a rational fashion. And my perspective is actually, probably, this is the wrong way to behave in these circumstances from these tech companies' cultures. And instead, you're supposed to... Well, there's really no right way to do it because it's not real anger. They're faking it. Mm. You know, so, so you know, you're <laughs> if you're sensitive, you're not going to know how to respond to mm. it. You know, in a real situation... Anger is relative. Well, of course, in that situation, that's totally bizarre to begin with. Mm. But I think that's a. I'm not sure you can draw much from that to mm. real life, unless unless the guy is really a good actor. Yeah, and he's got. And maybe they are. Maybe they've actually got a script. Maybe they know. I mean, did well, you get a? Suspicion. Yeah. How did that work? I mean, d- you're told that you're. Was he pissed off when he came in, or yes. did, did it start as him reacting to something? You no, used? no, no, no. He was pissed off in both cases, and this is with two separate companies. Uh huh. Both, both well-known how names. No, they were pissed off. Uh, by um, the immediate initial interaction with them, neither of them would make eye contact with me. The first guy in the company, uh-huh. and there was about four years between these two experiences. <laughs> the first guy actually belittled me and said he couldn't understand why I was being interviewed. The really? second guy was younger and he couldn't pull that, but he did something similar in the interview. And these are with different companies. I do yeah. suspect that it might, and I've talked it's to a other standard, people. Yeah, protocol. Yes, though. that it is a standard protocol. The only other time where I've seen that in an artificial sense was uh, when I when I entered this country in two thousand and one. Wozniak's people have been trying to get me a visa, and they kind of it kind of all fizzled out, and I ended up moving to the UK. But when I re-entered the US to work for Ericsson, I was confronted with the, have you ever had a visa applied for on your behalf to enter the US and it not being granted? And I said yes, because that's what had happened. Yeah. And I was immediately pulled aside with, you know, the people with tuberculosis <laughs> and all the other stuff, the people who were about to be deported, and waited in a small room for about an hour until All the I guys was... in turbans. Yes. <laughs> No, well, they were in cages. Thankfully, I was out of the cages just for the people. Oh, okay. yeah. So yeah. Um, then I was put in front of two immigration officers that played good cop, bad cop. Absolutely textbook good cop, bad cop. To the point where, as I was leaving, because they allowed me into the US, funnily enough, I apologized to the bad cop and said, I'm sorry for taking your time. And he was like, don't even bother. 
Like, it was clearly an act that they yeah, put on yeah. and been instructed to do in these circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting during the interview then to gravitate towards the bad cop. I can smile at him and answer all his questions no, diligently and blow why, the other guy off. That's why I actually I think I apologized to him at the end. Because again, as we described, my general yeah. my general sensitivity to resolving angry people <laughs> kind of makes me gravitate in those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of anger in me and I don't know. Uh, if uh, if other people are aware of it, are you aware of the anger in me? Yes. And really? occasionally we touch on it and occasionally yeah. is, it, is, it, per- is, it, is it that obvious? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's not in any way subtle, Heron. Okay. In fact, the really curious thing is the fact that you and I can get along so well. Because when it happens, when we spiral off into these things, and sometimes it's my fault as well. I mean, sometimes I just go out there and push your buttons for that heck of it. Usually when you're feeling a little under the weather, actually. <laughs> you but, wait till I'm vulnerable. Well, then. I don't know. I think we're probably two for one in terms of the uh, division of these things. But um, it is very curious because I think you, I mean, you give me, you show me a lot of respect, Heron. I'm not really sure where this respect comes from, but you do show me a lot of respect. Which I am very mindful of. I mean, it yeah. may not be intentional. But- well, listen, it's not often that I find someone that can at least <laughs> hold up their end of an intellectual conversation. Yes. That, I mean, that's worth something right yes. there. <laughs> but we both share the same curious proclivities associated with recorded conversations and broadcasting recorded conversations, which also helps as well somewhere along the line. Yeah. Uh, well, like I say, for me, it's just, uh, I find, I like, con- you know, I, this is another thing I realize is you're one of the few people I actually talk to. Mm. Because really, my life as a hermit, I mean, when I'm at work, we're, it's just, I mean, it isn't really human conversation at all. It's dealing with issues that are coming up that need to be dealt with. Yeah. And at the market and, very, you know, things like that. But you're one of the only things that that amounts to a conversations that i have with humans well such as you are <laughs> yeah i mean and, a little a little behind the scenes for folks listening in you and i recorded was it tuesday or when when did we record like, anyway someday this week yeah. but i was very mindful of the fact that you were at work it must have been tuesday because you Oh, I don't know. Anyway, I well, was very this week my schedule moved up a day, so I worked Monday and Wednesday instead of Tuesday and Thursday. So maybe we recorded on Wednesday, or maybe yeah. anyway. Somehow, anyway, I was yeah. mindful that I was communicating with you while you were at work through when we were organizing this. While I was at work, oh, I think okay. so. Oh well, okay. I don't think ah. Then I it must have been Tuesday because I wasn't at work. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> yes. Normally, I would have been at work. Maybe that's, yes. This week is also curious for me because unlike any of my co-workers, I've been on call and working relatively normal hours. So (laughs) it's been a strange week for me as well. For folks listening in, you and I recorded what I felt, and I've gotten feedback from our superfan mailing list, was a particularly good conversation associated with an introduction to certainly what you do. Yeah, it didn't have much to do with you. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was a little surprised actually. It turned out sort of to be an interview about me and my work, and and there was some stuff. I mean, you were obviously part of that, but mm. but uh, I was a little surprised at. at I wasn't expecting that. I've already spoken on the salon, and it was a relatively interesting, but also relatively familiar conversation with Bruce Damer. 
mm. which he and I have done periodically, sometimes in on stages and sometimes in podcasts. So in that context, I think I've introduced something, but I was actually really interested in showcasing, and I will use that term here, your body of work, particularly to I introduce you to a new audience. Yeah, I appreciate it. I thought it went very well, mm. actually. I thought, uh, you know, like I say, I was, it wasn't what I was prepared. I didn't, pre- well, I never prepare for anything, so <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this either. <laughs> but I was very mindful of the previous, you know, I mean, the stuff that you did with Tom Vine and also the stuff that was videoed and all the ways yeah. that you presented this previously. And what I wanted to do was give a digest version yeah. of a number of your ideas with the view that hopefully well we'll see you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, yeah. you know, I how people respond from to it lorenzo i mean my view is actually he put the podcast out that he was anticipating putting out a couple of days ago today so he's probably taking a couple of days off and yeah you know i i think the only thing that caused me a little bit of concern is that he's trying to be more inclusive towards you know strong feminist psychonauts and there were certain elements through our conversation that i thought well maybe if he's concerned about that he'll just censor it or cut it or yeah. he'll probably cut it did you leave so, in the part where i suggested that he was running out of things to talk about you know i thought that was critical actually <laughs> yeah i thought it was pretty good i hope you left it in. <laughs> that shows a degree of warmth which he may way or may not choose to uh, yeah yeah to, well he can always cut it out if he wants <laughs> so Somehow through the week, I think while I was working on one of these days where no one else was around, I somehow was promoted a conversation that Russell Brand had uh, with Amy Goodman. Russell Brand is, of course, the comedian who's now now becoming a political dude. Uh, and Amy Goodman is part of Democracy Now, which is the Pacifica flagship news. Doesn't she always also do that food thing? Amy Goodman? She does have a food component to her, but I'm not sure what. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's called good food. It's yes, another, that's it. Yeah. Yes, so yeah. She, I didn't know she was political too. I'd only heard her do the food thing. Uh, yeah. No, I've only ever heard her through Democracy Now talk about bread making a couple of times. I didn't realize she had a food thing as yeah, well. Yeah. She's so. got a. I don't know if it's a daily show or like an hour show. Well, I don't know, but I hear it in my car every once in a while because KPFK is on my one of my buttons. <laughs> so. We've talked periodically associated with Russell Brand, in particular his movement into politics. And uh, you know, when you say you know, he's not in – see, I wouldn't think of him as being into politics. He's into social criticism and social analysis and stuff, But and he talks about politicians. But when you say he's moving into politics, I mean, he's, is he going to run for something or – Well, his previous act was – typically associated with bodily fluids and elephants. So, I mean, I'm actually moderately familiar with his prior body of work. Oh, see, so, I don't know anything about him, really, exactly. except, you know, the, the things I've heard him say, which yeah. I'm pretty much in agreement with. Well, most that's of interesting, his. actually, because I've, I've found him relatively lightweight in terms of the stuff that I've well, read. Well, yeah, but also. I mean, he's got, and if he, listen, if he was any heavier, nobody would have heard of him. Ah, yes. Here's the eternal problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah. the issue, isn't it? You know, yeah, if you speak to the depth and uh, efficiently and scientifically, you're going to lose 95% of the audience. Yes. So his revolution book seems to be loosely based on the works of Lawrence Lessig, Naomi Klein, and Noam Chomsky. And when he outlined this in his interview with Amy Goodman, I'd immediately 
my ears perked up because I think of those three intellectuals. I, I don't even know who were the other. I mean, okay, Chomsky, so I'm familiar Chomsky with. Chomsky, you're familiar with. Naomi Klein does a, a series of kind of anti corporatist political analysis books associated with corporate influence. And what's the name? Also the, uh, Naomi Klein. Klein, okay. And um, and the other one? And Lawrence Lessig. And Lawrence That's- Lessig is the Creative Commons, um, formerly on the board of the EFF. Okay. Um, he's all about, which I'm moderately sympathetic to. I mean, it's one of those few political things that I... I'm sympathetic to the notion that we should create a some kind of constitutional committee to completely rework the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> we not just get rid of well, exactly. Not, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> anyway. we need a real United Nations. Exactly. Is what we need. Well, yes. <laughs> but of these three thinkers, I have serious concerns with all three of them in certain areas. Yeah, and I was thinking about this associated with. The death of Pete Seeger. I joke on this recording associated with the fact that there's no longer a left in this country since Pete Seeger died. Yeah. But I do feel that the best thinkers of that space have passed Of the left, you mean. (laughs) Yes. And what is left is just a series of people that can kind of state abstract facts associate well not even abstract facts describe the way they would like the world to be but don't articulate any means of moving from where things are currently to where they'd like the world to be yeah yeah and it's almost like they're political futurists in terms of the way that they describe you know what they want it's important i think to have some idea where we're going even if we don't know how to get there yeah you know at least we that can help in making choices if you've you know, if, yeah. you, uh, if if one of them tends to lead towards where you want to go, then... But the whole notion that we actually can make choices in this regard, I think, is an important question that cannot be assumed through this. It cannot be assumed... Well, I can make choices. Certainly, but can your choices have an effect at the level that you need them to have an effect? That's not my problem. Well, I mean, I try to make it as... No, I try to make, do as much as I can, but... Yeah. Once you've done it, it's released. It's gone. It's out there. It's yeah. going to have whatever. I know that I've had a major impact on a few people, mm. you know, and I figure if I've had a major impact on the thinking of, say, 10 people in, in life, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, that's nice. That's a good thing. It would be nice if it was hundreds of thousands or millions, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll take 10. Yeah. So, yeah, I think everything counts. Every little bit helps. If you affect 10 and I affect 10 and somebody else does, you know, then we can have a big impact. Hmm. And who knows what they'll do. Hmm. I guess my concerns with these three as intellectual folk is precisely associated with the impact and motivation that they can provide. They all have, I mean, in the case of Naomi Klein, she, she writes books about how things are currently. And mm-hmm. she identifies a series of patterns, yeah. which I think oftentimes yeah. are very good and quite valid. Yeah, yeah. no, it's important to understand yeah. how fucked up the caterpillar is, yes. Having said that, though, I find little of her writing profound. It's a bit like WikiLeaks. Well, it's a little easy, actually, to, to find fault 
with uh, the present yeah. system and ain't all yeah. that difficult. It's, I mean, a lot of what is announced, and this again is my criticism associated with Pacifica and democracy now, a lot of what is announced with kind of unfamiliar disgust, like who would have thought the government is spying on us? <laughs> you know, who would have thought the government is torturing well, people in who's secret camps? Would have thought that. Well, that's the funny thing because the indignation seems to be like this is a novel, never before no. mentioned thing. I know, I know. But listen, this is what you expect from language monkeys. I guess the standard behavior. Yeah, I mean, my assertion here, and it's an assertion that I make periodically to groups of people, is not to be a leader in this light, but just to instigate someone, hopefully someone who is at least 10, if not 15 years younger than I am, Yeah, to start pursuing this as their life goal. This being what? This being to create an instigatory counter-narrative that actually... Could manifest an instigatory in- counter narrative. Yes. What the, you mean a vision of the future? To a certain extent, yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's important. Rather than criticizing the caterpillar, we yeah. need to share our visions of what the hell the caterpillar is going to look like. Certainly. Because yeah. when Russell Brand is asked, so what is your vision of the future? And he says, I don't know. Yeah. He's lost an important opportunity. Well, yeah, he yeah that's true. Look for people. Well, he needs to find out. The thing is, he doesn't future. know. Yeah. And he needs to start thinking about that, probably. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but again, he, I think his, he's valid. Again, criticizing the caterpillar isn't particularly something I'm interested in, but, but, uh, I think it's good that other people are doing that. And, um, you know, and some of the people who, We'll have some people will have their eyes open. They will, they will see that for the first time, and that's important. About you know? a year ago, you and I wrapped associated with the idea that we could really outsource the entire political process. We didn't need politicians anymore. No, we didn't I don't need no. voting. We didn't no. need any of these things. No, they were all no. artificial. And we, we can do it a, all on Facebook. Exactly. We have a system <laughs> now which is far more advanced than anything that has ever existed previously. Yeah. And this whole redundant political system should be identified and described. Well, that's going to be a tough sell for for the you know for the next couple of decades that people aren't in America aren't ready for that one yet. Well, this is where it's interesting, (laughs) but it's not too soon to start talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the fact is, once they've heard it a thousand times. Uh, it won't be such a radical idea. I mean, anymore. the fact that Lawrence Lessig isn't saying this now, and the fact that, uh, you know, these other would-be thinkers in the space yeah. aren't... Yeah, they're trying to fix the old system. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but screw that. The mm-hmm. the seed of this idea, speaking the seed of this idea to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people... Yeah. Well, the Venus Project does that. I mean, it's a little naive in some ways, yes. but at least it has a vision of, of here's a way we could do it that's completely different. You know? So that's one. I think the thing is, we need more, we need hundreds of Venus projects with different ideas and people out there with their visions of the future and how it could work. Mm. Uh, But we need, you know, we need more than the Venus project and the Zeitgeist movement. (laughs) Yes. We've talked occasionally, but never really explicitly associated with my kind of current vision of economic warfare that is going on associated with just constantly ratcheting the economy on the workforce. And it's something that I don't think is ever really talked about explicitly. I'm not, I don't really understand what you just said. So every year, corporations need to be more and more profitable in order... The stock market is not based on 
stagnant growth or or even you know linear no it's growth. supposed to yeah it's supposed it's to based on exponential to, growth yeah, yeah. And well any kind which, of certainly some kind of growth yeah and so, hopefully exponential yeah. yeah technology provides us some of that thankfully yes but it's been real good for <laughs> quite a while yeah. <laughs> But my perspective has always been that the benefits that we've always been sold associated with technology, I saw an article this week that said, amazingly enough, technology enables us to work longer hours. <laughs> yeah, and, and be more efficient. Well, <laughs> yes. But I do feel that a lot of these things, like, for example, you know, the Venus Project, the Zeitgeist Movement, these kind of projects, for want of a better term, exist with the view that people have a certain amount of free time that they can devote to these things. And I think increasingly yeah. that is an artificial, you know, that's something which is not accessible to yeah, the majority of the population. Well, that's a good question because that's an, that's important. That, that's another reason I think that my audience right now is somewhat limited is that it does require time and intention mm. and reading and studying. Mm. And uh, I, I think a lot of people just don't feel that they're in a position to give time to those kinds of things. And that's unfortunate. You know, they're so busy surviving. That's exactly my point. Yeah. But actually, I think the the thumbscrews, for want of a better term, have been tightened and tightened and tightened mm. again. Yeah. To mm. the point where it's not just a matter of producing this information. It's a matter of producing the information in a form that is consumable by the most people that still have these kind of constraints. So things like books, for example, that historically we've opined about, I think are the wrong way to actually reach this audience. Well, but see, well, yeah, I understand but I'm, my thought is, is that if you can't read a book, if you can't ex read something that's 300 pages long with a, a continued argument that builds and stuff and comes to a conclusion and blah, 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 if you're not capable of doing that, you're really not ready to run a planet. Well, funnily enough, this is where it gets very... Well, I, okay, so the elites are then now the ones who are able to run planets because the elites are the ones... Well, right now, the, have... the goal is to get everybody to that level. But we're, not, we're certainly not there now. So when you say the goal, whose goal is it? A it's goal. My goal. goal. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. <laughs> because it's certainly not the goal of any educational system that I No, of course observe. not. No, no, they're... Yeah, but, but I don't give a shit about them. What I see is that we need a planet of enlightened people. Mm. I don't see any other solution to the problems we have. Changing governments and changing economic systems, you, you put the same old fucking language monkeys in those new situations and they'll fuck it up in a year. You know? What's got to change is the way people think. Mm. And I don't see any other real solution for the the next 50 years mm. so i'm not sure how much you've read about or how familiar you are with the cuban revolution of 1959 oh not familiar at all but yeah. they tried through a series of edicts and iterations to implement those kind of ideas through cuba those ideas being being giving people free time to explore oh, intellectual yeah. pursuits to create you know large yeah. art centers where people could go and learn musical instruments and these kind of things and, and also education <laughs> well uh, it went well they're uh, pretty literate aren't they i mean certainly their yeah, literacy is up yeah. there no it? no it, um, it's amazing yeah. it, it went okay up until you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and they had to start selling you know, tobacco <laughs> that's and rum right. to a variety that's right. of... That's right. Yeah, that's... See, that's that's so important, having that 
yeah, the fundamentals of living, mm. uh, having that handled is absolutely essential. That's That's got to be first. Everybody on this planet should have a roof over their head and food and clothes and information. Yeah. You know, but that's not the game of capitalism, right? Well, no, I know that's why capitalism has to go. Capitalism was a phase we went through. It seemed to work pretty good for a while, but uh, it's it's just it's not a good system for a stable, healthy, happy, loving planet. So that's very Chomsky-esque of you. Let's explore this a little bit more. So, <laughs> in saying that. Do you have any ideas about how one dismantles or what? I mean, your view no. is really that the wave is crashing and we're watching the end of capitalism as we speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's not really a problem that you have to concern yourself with. Yeah, I, I don't think I have to worry about dismantling it. The question is, how do we? what kind of system do we want on the other side of exactly. all the chaos that's coming? Exactly. And how do we <laughs> engineer that into being? You know? Yes. Yeah. And And I don't. No, I don't have the answer. Th- those are those are the questions that we need to be asking, though. Mm. Not not analysis of how fucked up the caterpillar is, Certainly. although that's important to know because that may influence the choices you make about how you're going to engineer the the butterfly. But uh, you know that the the fundamental thing needs to be: what the hell are we going to do? How do we want to run a planet? And again, it seems to me that the we again that if you can't you can't read a book and and be able to follow an argument for a couple hundred pages that's nice you can you know but you're probably not ready to get in the game of planet building so my youngest cousin i i don't know how i i we've never talked about standardized testing and i'm i'm not a fan of standardized testing but my youngest cousin scored 97.5% on the australian <laughs> standardized testing she wants to be an actress, so she's dropped out of college in order to pursue her acting career. I don't think she reads. I'm pretty clear, because I've had basic yeah. discussions with her, that she doesn't read anything to the lengths that you require. Well, no, that's the thing. is people. Re- it's, it's, that's why it's, books it isn't the issue. It doesn't have, I don't care whether it's printed. The issue is how long and complicated an idea is. If everything you read is two or three paragraphs long... Mm then you don't know how to think. Well, that's the interesting thing, because I think we are losing that as a concept that is considered important. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. I, the people, I, again, I tend to deal with people who do read books, you know. Yeah. But I'm aware that, it, that it's a tiny person. That's why I say my, my audience is small, because it's a, I really expect that. To study Gendo, I mean, it's real clear to me that uh, when I do get Gendo going, uh, it's going to require at least several hours a week of work, mm. you know, probably more, maybe in, maybe uh, five to ten hours a week. Yeah. I think we've discussed this previously, but a couple of years ago, I started receiving emails. Historically, I received emails from kids as young as 12 that were looking to program and looking to use Noble to teach themselves mm-hmm. how to program. Yeah. Um, and a couple of years ago, I started receiving emails. In fact, it was when I, in my early, probably first year at Netflix, I started receiving emails from people that wanted to get involved with Noble Ape. And these were computer professionals. These were people that worked for cell phone companies and mm-hmm. a variety of things on the, on the programming end, not on the sales end. Yeah. And they said that Noble Ape, as it existed, was too complicated for them to interact with. 
And I <laughs> These re- are programmers? Yes. I realized through that that I not necessarily was fighting a losing battle, but something had changed fundamentally that I needed to think about and address. What I did in response to this was to create a variety of different bits of documentation, including YouTube walkthroughs and other things. But truth be told, I haven't had any interactions with even people complaining about how complicated Noble Ape is for probably the past six months, aside from a periodic email from Bob Bob. Yeah. So I suspect actually, and I found this, you know, when I went to university that they changed the programming courses the year I entered university to be all about Java and to lose all the previous kind of technical, technical grit that, you know, doesn't appear to be taught in any university these days. So I think, I mean, I'm certainly very mindful of waves of what appears to be regressive change in thought and action and it's a problem that i face not just associated with books as we've discussed but associated with a number of other you know components of my life audio editing is a good example of that i mean i put in a bit of time to put out this recording i put in a bit of time to put out um you know model rail radio but to find someone who has the same audio editing chops, and I give out procedural stuff, I write documents, I create YouTube clips explaining this, but to actually, this is age independent, it seems to be that it's something that, my perspective on this seems to be that it doesn't relate to, I mean, for example, my my mother, for example, is a published author, she's incredibly literate, she still writes periodically. But even with her, she doesn't consume the same number of books she would have done a decade ago. Yeah, well, I certainly don't either. Yeah. I, I, it's tough for me to, to uh, I, I, you know, I, sometimes, usually I would say it takes me months to yes. get through a book. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, it, I don't know if that's age or, or what that is, but probably. I think it's the way <laughs> the media is changing. I realize that I spend more time now watching YouTube than I've ever done previously. I get a lot of ideas mm. through it. Yeah, but it's a completely different medium. Well, that's form the issue is finding out you know the appropriate balance of all these media for mm. whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I think one finds a natural balance anyway, irrespective of trying to force oneself to do a variety of things. If you find the information faster through YouTube now than through reading three hundred, four hundred page books, well, depend. Yeah, well, they're just not the same. You can't yes. even compare them. You know. But you're right. I think I, th- I think it's a good thing that we have all this variety mm. it's just that the ideal the ability to follow an argument over a period of days mm-hmm. you know through a through a, a printed text well, with illustrations if necessary <laughs> you know i think that is i think that's crucial i don't yeah i mean yeah what i just don't know what else to say about that if you can't do that you really can't think so, last recording, we talked about dreaming. And oh, yes. I thought, rather than reinvent the wheel here, I would go onto Amazon and find a book on dreaming that ah. represented a sufficient amount of the grit that I thought would introduce people. In fact, I'm actually, I hold a copy in my hand, I'm actually going to provide this to a co-worker who has talked to me about dreaming historically. I found Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming by uh, Stephen LeBurge and Howard Rheingold. I've read a few of Howard Rheingold's books. My understanding is that um, Stephen LeBurge has published previously on dreaming and Howard Rheingold's 
interaction with him was in order to distill it down to a particular audience. Yeah. I couldn't find any of the books that I had read on Lucid Dreaming previously. I could have dug deeper. I could have gone to ABE books and found secondhand copies of the books that I had read. The books, this um, LeBurge Reingold book is 330-odd pages, so it is quite long. It's also yeah. in the form of a series of... I guess LeBurge must write a column in a newspaper or something like that, because there are a series of kind of questions from people in particular parts of the US associated with their own exploration of dreaming. Yeah. It's a good book to get you thinking in the right kind of ideas associated with exploration of this space. Well, I've been, uh, you know, I told you I downloaded mm-hmm. it and, and I, I, I've been looking through it and I started uh, reading it last night and I'm going to re- just read a little bit out of it each night before I go to sleep, so, you know, and see, see what happens. <laughs> so in terms of techniques, I'm, because of the way I have to use my mind in my workaday life, I tend not to write things down. So I try to use my mind as much as possible where people will normally use a pen and paper, mainly in order to assist with recall, which isn't particularly good on a Friday night, but sometimes is uh, you know better than it can be. This book advocates documentation wherever possible, and my view is yeah. if you can develop a means of remembering your dreams without writing them down, you can actually utilise that in order to create episodic dreams or at least work your way through episodic dreams in recognizable fashion so i'm a little bit hesitant associating with the writing down but i think in general it's a very good book to get you thinking in the right space well yeah it's just yeah it's i've never read anything about dreaming because most of the stuff i've seen just struck me as nonsense Mm. and bullshit so Mm. i you know but like i say going through this and reading a little bit and skipping around and looking at table of contents strikes me that this could be uh, an interesting read so and especially to read it before i go to sleep Mm. (laughs) and the stuff associated with memory training and i mean uh, you know i think there's enough here to get people started, and certainly once yeah. people get a sense of the, you know, the formality of certain aspects. The other thing that I wanted to point out, which is a point that the book makes periodically, and I'm certainly very mindful of this, is that you shouldn't use all your dreams as structured dreams. The purpose of, you know, doing these kind of dream exercises is not to have a kind of panicked or militant... It's like go to work at night. Exactly. (laughs) No, And I'm certainly very mindful of this myself, that on many evenings I'll allow my dreams just to wander perfectly See, that's the thing, is that I just don't even have any memory of dreaming at all. This is an interesting skill. The book doesn't address that as much as I would like, because certainly, I mean, in the case of my co-worker, he, as you described, doesn't remember his dreams... As, as you know, you've described as well. And I think that is, you know, I just don't feel empowered in any way. And I'm really quite critical of providing any advice to people associated with. Well, if you haven't had that problem and overcome it, then you have, well, there's nothing you can say. And there's a certain element of pathology through this whole structure dreaming thing as well, which is why I wanted to make the point perfectly clear. That, you know, every night is not a homework exercise for me. Well, yeah, and, you know, but. and frankly, I don't really give a shit whether I get any dreams or memory of mm. dreams or not. What I want is some ideas that are going to help me put Gendo together, the yeah. missing chunks, or the glue that's going to hold the chunks together. Yeah. I just want those ideas. You know, if I wake up in the morning not having remembered a dream at all, but, you know, have an idea, yeah. I'll take it. You yeah. know, that's all I want. Certainly. 
Certainly. So, and actually, I don't give a shit about the dreams. I mean, I, I would imagine the ideas can come at any time. Certainly. There's an element of assistive dreaming, but I think really getting you to remember dreams and at least getting you to create footnotes through those yeah. you know, remembered things. Well, that is, would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I say, I really miss my flying dreams. I, God, I love flying. It's mm. just, God, it's glorious. It's just wonderful. Mm. And, uh, you know, irrespective of getting ideas for Gendo, I'll take some flying dreams any old time. Mm. <laughs> when did you stop having the flying dreams? You know, I don't know. It's been so many years since I've had any dreams at all. I mean, I still do. I mean, you know, a couple times a year I'll wake up in the morning, you know, when I'm dreaming. And, and you know, so I'd say a couple times a year. Uh, and and that, that's been at least for 20 years. And I really don't know. Yeah, I don't know, actually, <laughs> how long. But I used to have a pretty active dream. I think that was a long time ago. I think that must have been when I was in my 20s or something. My dreams certainly have changed over time, and they change based on environment. And I think now I'm familiar with... We've probably talked about this at one stage, but a number of the towns that I lived... that surrounded me when I lived in the UK were medieval towns, like walled towns and... Just a striking variety of towns, and you'd find yourself wandering through these markets that could almost have been, you know, like, I mean, there were literally, in the walls, there were shops that sold every possible kind of suitcase you could ever imagine. I mean, there were these crazy kinds of stores that just don't exist in the US, but were perfectly organic in the UK. And... I reflect on that periodically, and certainly I enter those environments in my dream space, and they are now familiar to me. If I had dreamed those things, although, truth be told, when I was four, I spent a good amount of time, you know, wandering around Europe with my mother and going through those kind of environments as well on mainland Europe, to a lesser extent in the UK. So I guess those themes have always been through my, you know, from experience into my dream space. I mean, certainly my own experience has been that my dream space has changed over time. The one thing that I'm very thankful for is that I can still remember my dreams. And do you uh, wake up in the morning uh, out of a dream and you remember that dream, or do you wake up and remember a dream that you had three hours earlier? Both. Or? They're not Both. mutually okay. exclusive. No, I know, but I'm just, yeah. I'm just wondering. Okay, but, the but you can wake is, up and not yeah. be waking up out of a dream, but still have memory of a dream that you had had previously, earlier in the evening. I should probably point out that I'm a relatively light sleeper and I can wake myself out of dreams at, say, 2am and actually be so caught up in the dream that I will think about that dream for anywhere up to an hour and then fall back to sleep. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, once I go to sleep, it's lights out. Yeah, you see, I'm not like that at all. In fact, it's quite... um, We had had a ham meal yesterday for dinner and that was enough to wake me up at about 2am... For a couple of hours. I mean, even what I eat affects my sleep. Mm. Um, so I am relatively mindful that my sleeping patterns are unique. Mm-hmm. And I think also one of the things that struck me about taking low-dose antidepressants was I slept as you sleep when I took the low-dose antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And I'd never experienced that previously, but I slept eight Yeah, it just seems perfectly yeah. natural to me. I, you know, I lay there at night, and the next thing I know, it's the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting. I, w- I wonder if that's what. Are there statistics on? Uh, has someone studied this? What people's dreaming patterns are? 
So the only experience that I've had with someone who was clinically studied in their sleep periods was my friend who was part of the Berkeley Sleep Study when he was, I think, 10 to 12 years of age. And that seriously fucked him up. In fact, (laughs) it required him to go in and do ongoing sleep studies because his sleep patterns were so heavily fucked up by it. So, yeah, I I mean, again, this is barbarically probably 30 or 40 years ago when really... You know, things were considerably more uh, problematic. Well, I, you know, I remember very clearly an essay, and I've mentioned this before, but I still think it's really important, is this idea that everybody needs seven or eight hours sleep a night, you know, is just such fucking nonsense. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's just bullshit. What you have to do is discover whatever it is your natural pattern is, and it can be drastically different between people. Mm. Uh, and we talked about this before, too. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into all that. But, I mean, I think that's really important. I'm pretty comfortable with my – I don't even use alarm clocks anymore. I mean, basically, except for the two days a week when I work. I go to sleep when I'm tired and I get up when I wake up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that works real good. And I usually get between six and seven hours sleep a night. Mm. And that seems to be sufficient. Yeah. I – Reflect on the times where I worked in startups where I had control over my... Well, I didn't really. I didn't have control over when I went to sleep. In fact, I really had limited control through the latter parts of these startups. But there was a kind of golden period, which went on for about six months, where I could actually sit where I went to sleep and when I woke up. And I also did things like if I woke up at, you know, 9 a.m., and I wanted to go out for a walk or even see a film, then I went out for a walk and saw a film... And then I came back and I worked for an additional length of time and I just made up for what I'd taken out of the day. Yeah. The nature of the workaday day is so elaborately created so you can have overlapping meeting times with a bunch of people and all this other <laughs> kinds of nonsense. Yeah. Then I actually, having had that experience, I realized if there was a possibility in the future for me to return to the state where I could pick my own work hours, it would be a luxury that, um, you know, would have a number of yeah. benefits in particular associated with my own sense of productivity yeah five days a week i'm i have no schedule mm. you know it's just wonderful i just mm. I, i'm the luckiest guy in the world mm. man it's just it's wonderful you do pick your meal times however well more or less i eat in the afternoon usually mm. you know but sometimes it'll be later some, sometimes considerably later i basically i only eat one meal a day and uh, and maybe a a little thing here and there but you know uh, yeah Uh, of course that's been the major thing i've been dealing with for the last two years you know is uh, losing all this weight down in fact i weighed myself today the lowest ever 172 And I'm thinking I'm going to get down to at least under 160. I, I, the thing is, I feel like I'm in control of it now. I mean, it, it, it takes a long, it's slow, but I mean, what I'm doing right now is losing weight. At some point, I will have to eat a little more than I'm eating now, but not much more because I'm only losing like one or two pounds a month at best. You know? hmm. that's, yeah. a healthy, that's a healthy decrease, though. Well, it's it's taken two years to dump about fifty pounds, Ooh. and um, and I figure another another year at least, 
and maybe I'll be getting close to where I, I don't know where I'm actually going to go, how far. Uh, but the diff- the thing is, is that for the first time in my life, I actually feel in control of it. I can decide just, you know, what I want to do because I, if I had to, I mean, this, the, what I'm doing right now, I could live the rest of my life eating the way I am right now. I like it. So, but I say I'm losing about 20, 25 pounds a year, uh, doing it this way. So, uh, I'll have to pick it up a little bit at some point. Hmm. Yeah. I actually didn't have that many topics this week. I kind of felt because we've already talked this week that, um, and plus yeah. it's also been a very curious week for me in terms of not being at all familiar in my general mental spaces. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I've been reflecting, I guess, on New Year's, not necessarily New Year's resolutions, but at least thinking about certain aspects of my life. It's a good time to think about it. Hmm. Yeah. I've come to various conclusions. See, I think you should move yeah. over to, I'm sorry, you should move over to the, to the winter solstice. Screw the capitalist American New Year, Christian New Year. Fuck them. The winter solstice is where it's at, man. Well, I've, I've informally followed the winter solstice probably for, I would want to say, probably at least four-fifths of my life. Oh, good. Okay, good. Just being aware of that, so, is, I think, is, is important. The reason you know? that I'm aware of it is because, as we've discussed previously, I suffer from low-light depression. Ah, yeah. And the winter solstice, for me... Do is, you notice the difference? Oh, I mean, like, so. right now? I mean, oh, do yes. you notice the difference oh, between yeah. now and a week ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. very mindful. Well, then you're very tuned in. You're probably more tuned into this than I am. Yeah. <laughs> and the artificiality of adding an hour and taking an hour away oh, and that's all this so sort of nonsense is yeah. just... Yeah, in fact, I think my low-light depression would probably be a lot easier to deal with if we didn't have this, you know, uh, yeah. real-time yeah. Yeah. Pacific yeah. daylight yeah, time Why can't we nonsense. just go into work? Every, okay, everybody tomorrow's going to come into work at 7 o'clock mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of 8 o'clock. <laughs> yes. So, no, I'm very mindful of the... And the Light levels do affect me greatly to the point where I install higher wattage light globes and do a variety yeah. of different techniques. But also, I appreciate. I like bright lighting. Mm. Uh, I think that's really uh, yeah. I like it. Mm. But I'm also mindful that my mind through the winter period is completely different than my mind through the summer period, and it, it creates problems for me which I need to deal with and resolve, which I don't need to deal with and resolve through the, you know, through the brighter light periods. Uh In fact, the quality of my mind through this period, and I've talked to my spiritual advisor about it periodically, is um, so distinctly different that a lot of the ideas that I want to commit to through this period of of the year are quickly discarded when the light picks up again. Really to the point where I. What about the other way? With stuff you come on to, you lose interest in it uh, during the. No, I feel. Dark period. I feel or- the dark period is a period of kind of combative elements, and you know my recent life work history through the winter periods has never been particularly positive either. So I guess it's interesting that the light kind of resolves itself in my own mind. Yeah. But See, I have no knowledge of, or experience of any of this. I don't mm. notice any much of a difference. I mean, maybe I should, maybe I'm missing something, mm. you know, but I, between the way I think in the summer and the way I think in the winter, I, I'm not aware of any difference. There, there may very well be, but I'm certainly not aware of them. Mm. 
When I was a child, I don't think it affected me as much as it does now I am an adult. However, when I was a child, I would get bitterly cold. And being cold, be, having my hands literally blue in colour for, <laughs> you know, the winter months was just a pretty standard practice. It's funny, actually, because now we live in this house, I'm actually quite cold. Why, why was it so cold? I didn't know Australia was that cold. I lived in the coldest part of Australia. I guess so. And how cold did it get? In, I mean, did it get down to, did it snow there? Well, it was dry, so, but if it, if there had been precipitation, it would have snowed. It would have snowed. Yeah. So, I mean, the temperature got down below freezing. Then. Yes. Okay. Yeah. In fact, it's quite curious because the majority of my family still lives in this environment and I track the temperatures and just think to myself, I can't believe, I mean, look, Truth be told, it's nowhere near as cold as Massachusetts or yeah, yeah, Maine right, yeah, or I don't any of so. these kind of places yeah. where really I can't understand how humans have. Yeah, what the hell are they doing there? <laughs> so moving on from just the sheer craziness of those areas, uh, but it does strike me that um, a lot of my New Year's resolutions that I made when I lived in Australia were distinctly different than they are here. Primarily because of the weather. In fact, I used to really like the end-of-year summer that I would get in Australia. To the point where I went back there, um, I went back there, I think, in 2011, and just loved it. I mean, I think probably what I should do is actually plan to be in the Southern Hemisphere through the worst parts of the winter. Yeah, that's and right. then come yeah. back to the Northern Hemisphere yeah. and just, you know, pick up where I left off. But or just, just go to Florida with all the other folks. <laughs> Well, Florida's interesting, isn't it? Well, they still have snowstorms in in winter in Florida. I don't think the weather can be particularly bad. Yeah, not even. down in the Keys. No, actually, I track this because there's a model train show that's on in I think January. Actually, it's in it's within the next week. It's on called Cocoa Beach. Uh, well, that's the location, yeah. and um, they've had blizzards a couple of years out. Oh, of the it's past had snow summer. here. I mean, I, I've yeah. seen snow in L.A. Yeah. You know, there's been ice on the sidewalk in the yeah. morning. I slipped and fell on my ass on it once. Yeah. <laughs> and we had a, or at least the trash had frost on it this morning here. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's been cold. Yeah, it's yeah. fifty outside right now here. Yeah, and that's cold for me. Mm. <laughs> so. I'm mindful that some of my New Year's resolutions are actually prefaced on this kind of winter low-light depression, and come the summer months, they will all seem ridiculous. Mm. But I do plan things in terms of time, and I'm very mindful when people come and stay with us now, and, you know, where we're going to be, going to Australia, and all these other kinds of things, as I lay out my... Yeah, my you plan out the year yes. by how much light there is, <laughs> yes. In fact, I'm going to Australia. In fact, I'm going to Canberra or the Canberra area through the period where it descends into winter. And I'm actually quite mindful that I'm going to get a double dose of entry to winter this year mm. due to going to my brother's wedding. I've tried to explain to my spiritual advisor that most of the bitterly cold part of being bitterly cold will be wind chill. Um, but yet it's certainly considerably colder than it is here. Well, but I mean, that's why they invented down jackets, right? <laughs> I mean, well, to keep it. No, I think actually, if they hadn't invented down jackets and they just got people moving equatorially, then it would be a very different culture. It'd be a very different world, yeah. yes. And I mean, I think to a certain extent there was some equatorial movement, and there has historically been equatorial movement. So, yeah, it's just those that are holding out in these colder climes that. Um, 
Well, that's that's part of this idea of a reasonable planet. You know, how many people do we really need to have a a viable, you know, civilization? I suspect we don't need more than a couple hundred million, actually, for the whole planet would probably be quite enough. And, um, you know, and if they're in places where a million or or several million live together, then you're really talking about you only need a few cities around the world, and where would those be? I think the whole nature of cities is... Um, I mean, I've, I've kind of ebbed and flowed in my view on cities, and certainly when I lived in the UK, I realised that cities were very, very artificial. In the UK, it feels like, anyway, a majority, aside from, you know, London and Manchester... And what London. do you mean by artificial? Of course they're artificial. Yeah. Anything human beings do is created by human beings. Well, you could look at an ant's nest and say an ant's nest is a bit like a city. Yes, it's, it but, be, it, but you wouldn't call it artificial, though. You just populations, call- you know, might need to congregate in certain circumstances. I just don't think the density is necessary. Oh, I see. I think it... It's absolutely essential. Well, maybe we'll have better technology that, that could allow that. Uh, have you read any of Paolo Solari's stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, think, I still think his analysis pretty much nails it. Uh, if we don't want to work, if we want to have a lot of free time, we need to be dense. Well, that's interesting because I guess the problem is what we've, you know, I mean, even in even in the utopian you know, future that you describe, there are going to be people that like to, you know, tend to oh, there's people's no reason injuries. Not, yeah, there are no, going to there's be no people that like to yeah. garden. I mean, there's, the problem is all that work is described. You that know? can all happen. Yeah. I don't see any problem with that. I'm just saying that the majority of humans are going to be living pretty densely, probably. Although they'll have a lot of space individually inside but i mean there's it seems that that makes a lot of sense that just makes it efficient so that we don't have to spend all our time trying to survive and we can spend more of our time doing art so we need we need an efficient uh support system mm. but i think there's no reason why one person might want to go spend a year uh in the wilderness somewhere mm. you know and he could fly in with a helicopter with a a living unit you could just drop down in the middle of nowhere uh with energy and internet connection and everything you might want and you could just live there for really as long as you want you know and then when you're ready to come back you just call up and say okay come pick this shit up and let's go home (laughs) there was a um television show that i was quite partial to called i think treehouse masters or something like that It was quite curious, the kind of lead characters, but the idea was that this fellow would go and build or renovate tree houses that Mm. had been built in various parts of the world. I mean, this is like a a reality TV kind of thing, you mean? Okay. Camera crews and what have you. I mean, it's hard to do a television show without a camera crew, but anyway. No, but I mean, they were going out and talking to real people who had real tree houses and and stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Most of his shtick was associated with building custom treehouses for people to their particular specs. Mm, yeah. But he would occasionally go and visit other people's treehouses to do, you know, various fixings and also to show the wide variety of treehouse yeah, yeah, styles what you that do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One, oh, of that's these, neat. Yeah. one of these folks lived out in Alaska for some of the year in one of these treehouses that really was, as you say, almost like a drop down thing with survival yeah yeah so plop it there and there you go well off 
funnily enough, because it was a treehouse, it was off the snow line, which I think was very intentional that if he built a structure on the ground, it would have been completely consumed by snow. (laughs) So building a a treehouse was actually a very smart way of avoiding this problem. Yeah. Yeah. We, I may have told you this story, I may not, because it was through the period where we weren't recording. We actually, when we started looking for houses about two plus years ago, the first house that we looked at and considered seriously, actually it was cheaper than the house that we're in currently, was a an eccentric tree house that had been built, well it started out as a tree house, and then the various components of the tree house had been built into the land, but the tree that had originally housed the treehouse still remained on the property. In fact, the road that led into was called Treehouse Way up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Sounds neat. It was very, very neat. The main concerns that I had, which were completely different to my spiritual advisor, were structural. It was on a piece of land that was constantly in flux, and you could actually see the land consume previous built bits. You mean because of geological activity or what? If you can imagine, this was in the valley of a creek. It was about, well, it was probably about 100 yards from the creek, but it was a 45 to, in some cases, almost 60 degree angle down to the creek where they had kind of carved steps in. But it was a very Uh steep slope. Yeah, okay. And where they had put fences 10 years previous, the earth had already consumed the fence. Okay, so the erosion from the water is is eating away at the whole thing. The other thing that I found was there were a few balconies made out of steel and things with no underlying supports where you could see cracks under the balconies. It was also very heavily uh, redwooded. And the location of the trees seemed to indicate that um, any one of those trees falling on the structure would have, would have been... <laughs> would have been a big problem. That's all, folks. <laughs> it was also incredible, which I liked. My spiritual advice didn't. It was also incredibly remote. It was about... So we have a listener, Rich Murphy. I'm not sure. Rich actually gave me his address today because he's hosting some Model Rail Radio 100 show stuff, a wine tasting and various other things. Oh, neat. So I haven't actually looked up where Rich is in the Boulder Creek area, and this was certainly outside the Boulder Creek area, although relatively close by. It takes about half an hour and a good day for a standard driver to get to Boulder Creek from here. This place took about 45 minutes, which meant you were talk- you were going along normal roads yeah, for some yeah. of the time, and then you started going on these crazy kind of double-back roads that went down to where this house was located. Unfortunately, we didn't, well, we didn't go with the house primarily because of the location, primarily because it would have created a crazy series of circumstances for my kind of workaday life. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I am very sympathetic to those kind of things, and in the long term would dearly love to live in a place that had... Well, Topanga Canyon mm. down here is is that, that whole thing up in the Santa Monica Mountains. Yeah. There's uh, just whole sorts of interesting little places up in there, wonderful communities of interesting people, but it's way the fuck down these long, stupid exactly. roads, you know, and, yeah. Yeah. and they have fires there, yeah. and that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, so um, my friend Bruce Damon lives in Boulder Creek as well, and he has periodically asserted that the reason he lives in Boulder Creek is because it's hard to get to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do they have good internet there? Mm, I don't know. I mean, he seems to have good internet when I'm there. He certainly has Wi-Fi over his entire property, which is a bit of a... Well, but I mean, yeah, yes. Uh, You know, I could see living in an isolated place if I had a good internet. Mm. 
And as long as there was a freeway close by, you know, within, say, 10 miles or so. Uh, well, this is know. where it gets interesting. I mean, I guess the 17 is that. For this, I worked out for this treehouse place, it was slightly more than 10 miles from the freeway. But um, I guess my point is that this goes against some of your narrative associated with how we should live densely together. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know. But again, I, I think there's a way to accommodate both. I just don't think you can do it massively. It destroys the planet. That's, you know, we're spreading. That was the thing I got well, from it. because we've been stupid about the way we've done it to date. Well, yeah, but like I say, again, for the majority of humans, most of the time, uh, the idea of, well, Solari likens civilization to an animal that is so poorly organized, it's got no more energy than to just survive it, it can't dance or play music or so do anything it spends all and that we've discussed already this yeah I, I know maybe we have but it's maybe it's worth discussing again so, because uh, it's i think it's an important principle uh it's it's wonderful yeah topanga canyon but if everybody lived like that uh that ain't gonna work well, unless, like I say, unless there's some new, uh, you know, unless we can develop teleportation and some other things that I don't foresee in the well, immediate future. So what we've discussed already associated with your transformation of diet is required for a civilization to exist in remote areas. I mean, the fact that we require, you know, vast yeah. quantities of meat, milk, oh, cheese. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we, need, kind of we need people chow. We Except, need soylent no, purple. Or we need to have a diet which is scalable to the areas that we inhabit. Oh, I think we need to go to a completely artificial. Again, that's just my, my take on it. We need soylent purple yeah. or, or something like that. The problem associated with growing food has always been that a certain amount of time needs to be devoted to the Yeah, I'm not food. willing to do that. See, that's you the see? thing is I want... Yeah, and I don't want a fucking kitchen and a refrigerator and a stove and a garbage disposal well, and you a don't restaurant. Need a refrigerator in almost all of these circumstances. A refrigerator is when you bring in processed. No, foods no, you're and right. Meats. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I agree. Yeah, and I think but you still need a stove and you need a. You and know, it can be very primitive, and your stove can also be the unit that heats your environment and provides you with hot water. I mean, you can have a multifunction. Well, listen, you can come up with a lot of stuff, yeah. you know, and maybe that can work. I don't know. I'm just saying that the only solution I've seen, again, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced by Solari's arguments, but I don't, I don't, and I don't think most people want to live like that anyway. Well, but the thing the, is, they is should the, have the opportunity. This and is I the think that's protocol is that Solari bases his argument, if I recall correctly, associated with a relatively minimalist movement from where we are currently. Uh, it's not about a complete reinvention where people have, you know, lifelong passions which also contribute to the broader society. It's not a kind of a No, he was just looking philosophy. at the physical No, exactly. he was what exactly. he was doing is comparing civilization to a biological organism yeah. and saying we should follow what biologic biological organisms don't spread out thin over a large area. Actually, they tried that bacteria and they got pushed aside well uh, except the oceans are full of organisms that spread out over large areas and do there are, no there are stuff. still they're still there but they're not running the show anymore well <laughs> you know? if you talk to marine biologists well i know is... i know there's all that too it's all part of this whole system all yeah. i'm saying is that uh, that was a th that's not our way Unless we develop but some new technology. I guess that's my critique of Solari's argument is that, and funnily enough, you also advocate a strong change of thinking, 
that's required to evolve well, it depends. This would require new technology that I don't uh, that I don't even know what it would be. I mean, you got to get food from where it's produced to where it's going to be consumed. You got to get energy there. You got to, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of that things. That is only a problem in this country. That is an artificial U.S. created. No, it's, problem. it has to be done. That's all. I don't care how. I mean. The thing is, it has to it has to be available. Food, energy, uh, information, all this stuff has to be available to all. But they of can us. be created locally and consumed locally. The notion that a can of tomatoes has to come from New York City in order to arrive. Well, here again, is yeah, my sense. Is, you no, know, I agree, and my sense is. Uh, I don't want to get into food. I want to see soil and yeah. See, I've already I've made a choice about that, mm. I, and I I think issue the issue is fueling our bodies efficiently, and the notion of food as a social thing is just part of our brain damage. So I was talking to my spiritual advisor last night, associated with the fact that I so that I consider food actually as something that should be part of exercise and part of a variety of things. So, for example. When I lived without a car, the movement of food and the choices that I made when I purchased food was directly related sure. to actually having to physically transport That's the food. That's right. That's one consideration. And also, the choices that I make associated with what kind of food I grow is based on the fact that I can get a wide variety of other things through the supermarket. But if I couldn't get those things, if I was in a, a rationed or you know some kind of shortage culture, I would grow completely different things yeah. And would you know? So I think actually, what needs to happen here is a culture of understanding well, no, of variety. Well, there's no right. reason why you, in the culture I'm talking about, that you couldn't have a garden and grow whatever the fuck you want. I'm just saying that what there needs to be is for people who don't want to do that, for people who want to spend their time playing their guitar or traveling to the uncharted wildernesses on the planet or whatever the fuck they want to do, that there is a little cupcake <laughs> that they can eat two or three a day that will absolutely fuel their organisms optimally for their own particular chemistry and heredity and will keep them in perfect fucking health. And food has nothing to do with it. It's called fueling the organism. Is there anything that would limit these people in what they could do? I mean, <laughs> is it is this a notion that... The freedoms that these individuals would have would be unbounded freedoms. So, for well, example, no, there are no unbounded freedoms. We live in together. If you start doing something that impinges upon me, then we got a problem. Certainly, but in this society, would there, be, if someone were allowed to go to Antarctica or went yeah. to Antarctica for a period of time, yeah. their expectations associated with being warm and fueled and all these other kinds of things should no doubt still be proportionate to the environment that well there's all that we can work that out we could I, it seems to me you could easily take all your comfort with you or if you don't want to you don't need to mm. you know if you want to rough it fuck it go ahead and rough it personally i'm going to take my little dome with me mm. <laughs> yes i think we've lost a connection with our physical selves uh, through things like Cars, trains. Well, that's why I go out and spend planes. one night a year under the stars in the desert. Yes. You know, because, uh, boy, you know, that's, we're out of, well, I'm out of touch with that stuff. Yeah. You know, once a year is, is not really enough, but 
Um, yeah, actually, I'd like. I'm thinking. You know, yeah. Is where do I want to live? You know, I I, I, I don't want to live in the desert, but I might live somewhere pretty fucking remote, up in Big Bear or someplace. You know, uh, where you're a couple hours away from anything <laughs> actually going on. Or I don't know. I I don't know. Those are all issues. But the internet seems to work for me for most everything else and the rest of the time I'm alone anyway mm. so I might as well be up in the fucking mountains <laughs> I've come to a realization which I'm still decompressing which in part actually relates to this whole package theft nonsense mm. that for the first time in my life and I did this actually I was sitting outside thinking to myself a couple of uh, weeks ago and I realized that there was a patch of earth that was exposed where ideally there would be some kinds of grass growing or something like that. This is in your front yard backyard. or what? In your backyard. Uh, and I had my phone there and I looked up eclectic forms of grasses and I found some Kentucky <laughs> blue grass. And within, within three days, I had a bag of Kentucky wow. blue grass seed that I was spreading over the hole. Oh, wow. And how long ago was this? Um... Two weeks ago? Okay. And Actually, no, it was probably sooner than that because... Well, so what, yeah. what have you got out there right now? Well, it's going to take a lot longer to grow because it's winter and these kind uh, of things. Yeah. This uh, is the right time to plant? Or but uh, Well, anyway, I scattered it just to see if something would come yeah, out. Yeah, let's see what happens. that I still have half a bag of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me realize that I... I mean, we talked a little bit last time, which may or may not... I can't recall whether I cut it or not, associated with just... The notion of existential gratitude. That it's amazing to actually live in this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also starting to wonder whether, particularly because we donate a lot of stuff, we we go through things, we read books, we donate books, we we go through this whole system, and I'm starting to wonder if the cost of shipping me Kentucky grass, well, not the, not the cost associated with that, but the petroleum and all the other packing yeah, all products the, all and these the kind stuff of things. that goes in with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And whether yeah. I'm just actually abusing this ability uh-huh. currently. Well, those are good questions yeah. to ask. Those yeah. are, you know, I don't think we are in any we're close to an ability to answer those kinds of questions yet. But they certainly should be. Uh, those are worthy questions. Absolutely. What? Yeah, that's how are we going to manage this planet? We've got so much uh, energy available. Although I assume that's not going to be a problem with solar when that gets handled. And I assume that's going to get handled relatively soon. Yeah. So, well, that's my assumption. You know, if if we don't handle that, we're in serious trouble. I mean, <laughs> without some renewable energy form and a damn good one, I mean, the oil is going to run out at some point, and uh, that's not a, you know that's not acceptable. So we need to develop other forms. Yes. You know, and from everything I see, solar is just going gung ho. I mean, every every almost you know two or three times a week, I read an article in some science place about some lab somewhere that's you know had this interesting breakthrough in solar. You know, so there's, I mean, none of it's close to being monetized or put into the world as products yet, but the labs are going great. So, you know, part, if we can take a step back, part of this. Concern I have associated with consumerism is the quantity of things that I receive through Amazon. Uh huh. And I'm seeing increasingly a very negative narrative associated with really? Amazon, particularly associated with their business practices. But some of that actually I don't feel as a primary thing. When I came to this country and traveled by train in particular, 
I would meet people that were just amazed that I lived in Silicon Valley, you know. And these were Americans <laughs> who could live in Silicon Valley if they wanted. There are plenty of Americans that live in Silicon Valley. Oh, these are language monkeys. Moved here. And the whole notion that, um, in fact, the majority of the nonsense that, you know, I spent in my 20s related to this whole notion of nationalism and citizenship. I mean, we yeah. haven't really decompressed that at all. But, you know, a good portion of my energy was spent actually coming to this country, fighting all the nonsense that went through Australians' minds, and then, you know, moving to the UK and then coming back here and all the energy and time and, you know, paperwork mm. that was frustrated oh, by yeah. all these things. Yeah. And when I encounter Americans who... <laughs> who just don't get it associated well, with... Well, that's most you know, of them, isn't it? Well, this is where it gets extraordinary. So the the Amazon narrative strikes me as very strange that there are these people that live in Kentucky and Arkansas and these kind of areas that have no other option but to work for Amazon and have no other option but to be abused by Amazon. And these aren't, you know, from what I see anyway, these aren't elderly folks. This is these capitalism. Listen, this is capitalism. Mm. This is the system we live in. So, yeah, granted, it's fucked, but it's here. we got to deal with it. I think it's this disempowerment narrative that actually reacts that I oh, react yeah, against yeah. particularly negatively. Almost everybody feels like, yeah, well, they just there's nothing really we can do. Yeah, that's <laughs> just the way it is. Well, I guess their anger. I mean, I guess my concern is that their anger is misplaced. Associated yeah, with this. yeah, they should be angry at capitalism. Yeah, or at least they should consider the abilities that they have and use the abilities that they have to. You well, know. they should not be unconscious language fucking yeah. monkeys. They should think. They should read. They yeah. should get new ideas yeah. instead of watching Dancing with the Stars and whining about uh, they can't get a big enough TV. Yes. Well, no doubt this is going to rub a certain group <laughs> of our listeners the wrong way. Really? You think? Well, good, good. And if that if that fits any of our listeners, I don't know what the fuck they're doing here. <laughs> Yes. They obviously don't get what's being talked about. Or maybe, no, I think what they do actually is that they take what's being talked about and they reinterpret it within their own uh, narrative. Yeah, yeah, well, that's certainly going on, yeah. And that's the difficulty <laughs> that actually, I mean, I, I've told these stories about meeting people that I've worked with for 10 years to only to realize that we don't get on with each other. I would really like to get a lot more feedback from people. I mean, I never get any emails or anything on well, Facebook. I mean, I do want, yeah. I shouldn't say never. I do, mm -hmm. I do occasionally, but. We have this mailing list that I set up, which yeah. I've, you know, so for example, the audio that we recorded for the psychedelic salon, I put to those seven guys because, mm -hmm. you know, they were already, at least they well, say seven is a good start. Yeah. You know, that's, if we got seven people who were there, I, that's just thing I'd like to hear from you guys. Hmm. You know, I'd like to hear what's on your mind, what kinds of things you're thinking about, about, you know, your reactions to stuff we say, or again, stuff you'd like, you know, whatever, what issues are you interested in, or how does what I'm doing anyway, or Tom is doing, relate to issues that are in your real life? I'd really like to hear that and see how we can speak to those things. Aaron, I'm short of voice this evening. And I've, uh, yeah, I've been kind of considering that through my sipping, but I think I've, I've reached probably the end of my productive voice of the evening, and I think that is a perfect way to conclude the recording tonight. Okay. I'll talk to you in a week's time. Actually, I may not. 
we'll have to work out whether I talk to you in a week's time. The next two weeks are going to be very interesting uh, because I have Bottle Rail Radio and also I'm taking some time off to work on a, a book chapter, but I may be able yeah. to record next week. We'll just have to play it by ear. Okay. Anyway, I'll talk to you when I talk to you, Aaron. Take care. Good, good night. See you.